The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest God's Laptop Edition. It's Wednesday, September 12th, 2018. On today's show, Searching is uh, something of a garden variety mystery thriller. We'll get into that. Uh, about a father's search for a missing daughter. Though this one comes with a twist. Almost the entire movie plays out on the screen of a desktop computer. And then Ariana Grande's path to absolute world historical dividend has been, as I understand it, a complicated one. But with her new record, Sweetener, hailed as an R&B gem, a trap gem, we'll figure out what that means too, she's there. Um, We discuss her and uh, this blissfully received record with Slate's Chris Melanthi. And finally, Burt Reynolds was arguably the biggest movie star of the 1970s. He has passed away. We discuss a wonderful and curious legacy. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hello, Steve. And of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Stephen. So Searching is a, as I said, a pretty straightforward genre picture. It should be said right up front, though, it comes with two pretty big quirks. The first is that it's the first major mainstream Hollywood thriller to star an Asian American. That would be John Cho, a doofy, sweet, well-meaning dad who is unaware of how far his adolescent daughter has drifted away from him. He's rudely awoken to the facts of her life and inner life when she goes missing. And here, of course, is the second quirk of the movie. The entire film plays out pretty much on screens, mostly his desktop screen, which in this day and age does tend to aggregate our entire life. Surely one of the themes of the movie is that the massively enabling features of the internet are matched uh, only by its massively alienating powers. What follows is a man's virtual search, both for his missing daughter, but also for the daughter who who has been under his nose and missing all along. Uh, I should say the film also stars Deborah Messing as the cop assigned to the case. Uh, The movie doesn't come with a clip, but it does come with a trailer. Why don't we play the audio to that? Leave me a message or text me back. Hi, sweetheart. Um, Just checking in because it looks like you already left for school this morning. Hey, Margo. Dad again. Why did you leave your laptop at home? I haven't been able to reach Margo. Wait, you can't find Margo? Study group only went till nine. She said it was going all night. No, she definitely left at nine. Authorities are asking anyone with information to please call the hotline or 911 immediately. Update me whenever you learn something. Did she mention anything unusual going on lately? We're not really that close. You guys are friends. Kind of. She has friends, right? She keeps to herself a lot. She's quiet. I did see her eat lunch alone. On Thursday? Every day. All right, Dana. Well, there's no way around the fact that this is a gimmick picture, Picture, right? It's built around a, a gimmick. Um, uh, that's not the only way to judge it. What do you make of this movie? Yeah, I'm glad you started off with the word gimmick because I have a whole, this is my thing to say about this movie, and then we can get into the details of it. I mean, first of all, I liked it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I agree that it's somewhat gimmicky and not the most substantial or in its in its story structure innovative thriller you'll ever see. And the last 20 minutes contain several ridiculousnesses that we will only vaguely allude to so as not to spoil them. Loved every one of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. But let me just start off with defense of the gimmick. Okay. So one of the uh, one of the reviews that we read in our, our prep document for thinking about how people have responded to searching 
criticized the movie on the on the basis of this idea that it was a gimmick. But let's think of all the great thrillers and thriller history that have been based around a gimmick. I mean, the first one that popped to my mind was Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, right? Which is the gimmick of that movie is that it's all one take, somewhat cheated on in a couple shots. But basically, yes, it's all one continuous take of film, which echoes the rope that is the murder weapon of the movie. Is it Alfred Hitchcock's best movie? Does the gimmick show through a little bit around the edges? Yes. But is it not an intellectual thrill? Absolutely. And then another kind of classic film noir gimmick that sprang to my mind is this movie Lady in the Lake. I don't know if you guys have seen mm-hmm. it. It's a sure. Raymond yeah. Chandler adaptation, right? Starring Robert Montgomery and also directed by the actor Robert Montgomery, which has the gimmick of being completely from the hero's point of view, i.e. the camera is like the hero's eyes. So you only see his face when he's looking in a mirror and you, you know, the camera sort of moves as if it were moving like a human head. It's sort of stilted and disorienting and weird, but it's completely worth seeing and, and really sort of an important movie in film history in that it tried this radical approach and stuck with it. And I saw something of that in this movie Searching. And for me, what made it the most interesting was this gimmick of staying on screen all the time, which, again, took a little bit of cheating. Like the movie doesn't take place in real time. There's sort of like God is editing it. Put it that way, right? God is deciding like which of these moments of John Cho's Mm on-screen life we're going to see. And you're right that he's on his computer a lot, but he also finds a way to get into his daughter's laptop. And so what's going on in the background is always important in this movie. And I just completely disagree with the idea that this is a boring standard thriller that happens to have a gimmick slapped on top of it. I think the director, whose name is Anish Chaganti, is making his first feature film. And I feel like it was just a very bold choice of him to uh, to script an entire film around screens in the way he does. Well, and I also think he, the the gimmick serves a point in the story. And actually, a movie that this reminded me of a lot is Eighth Grade, right? It's another movie about a dad and a daughter in her teens. Ah, true. Who um, has to reckon with the fact that he sort of lost his child into a screen and can't connect with the daughter that used to so easily scamper upon him when she was a child as much as he used to. And that question of who the person is who's developing all these digital relationships uh, and how you find them and whether you can find them in the real world or whether you have to find them in the screen is, you know, I'm not I'm not saying it's like uh, the most important work of the modern self in the technological age that ever was made. But I think that's part of why the gimmick isn't irritating is that it's not empty. It's it's mm-hmm. um, it's used for suspense and tension. And, you know, I mean, basically, it's like a taken plot, right? The daughter's gone and w- who took her and can he get her back? And, you know, it's it's the, the mechanics of the thriller are not revolutionary, but the <laughs> the um, set of skills is new. <laughs> the set of skills is new. I'm really good at double clicking. <laughs> I have a very particular way of reverse typing. image search, baby. <laughs> My drag and drop is off the chain. <laughs> um, so it, so I thought it was clever. I liked it. I liked it. Yeah, I, you know, here. So let me let me puzzle through this out loud and see what you think. I thought that the first ten to fifteen minutes of the movie, setting up the whole movie, were nearly perfect, um, and almost had a Pixar like, you know, quality in that that a beautifully faceted gem is handed you in the first roughly 10 minutes of the movie that sets up the the emotional reality of the entire film. I almost felt like they were ghost written or ghost supervised, script supervised by John Lasseter um, for a reason that I won't give away tied to the plot um, that, that, you know, tinges the whole movie, tints the whole movie with a real 
real pathos, like a genuine pathos, um, but also just for the utter perfection and concision with which you're introduced to these major characters and and w- this plot point that I won't reveal how that obviously is the kind of aching presence slash absence at the heart of the entire movie. It's the origin of what alienation there is between the father and the daughter. I thought that was so beautifully done and and beautifully done in the way that it integrated the gimmick into the plot and into the theme. I mean, the truth is one knows immediately once you hear the gimmick that a movie like this can be made because we do all substantially live now within our laptops and upon our screens. And we do substantially relate to one another via technology. So you don't feel as though it's going to be some incredible stretch uh, uh, to pull it off. That said, I was with the movie for almost all of it until the end, at which point it wasn't just that its essence is a very, very standard thriller that absent the gimmick would probably never have been made or wouldn't have been a notable film. But, but really was that these three elements of gimmick, plot, and theme unraveled. And all of the gem-like cleverness, concision, and integration of all three that define the first 15 minutes of the movie blow apart really in a, in a, I thought, sort of surprisingly sloppy way towards the end. This is a first feature. It deserves the great inflation that every first feature gets. It deserves more than that amount of great infla- inflation because of the gimmick and the way the gimmick really sustains itself through most of the film. I wouldn't dissuade anyone from seeing it. I He came close to like sticking a landing that would have made one, you know, totally bedazzled. And I think it's just fair to point out that that's not what happened. I'm trying to, I, I, I don't know that we can get into this without getting too much into the ending, but I'm not sure I agree with you that, uh, that the wild ride of the end unravels the rest of the themes. There is a gigantic plot hole near the end, which mm-hmm. about which the only thing I will say is that <laughs> the cops would have figured out a thing that he figures out about three quarters of the way through. <laughs> Yeah, and you could drive a truck through it unless you're Julia Turner. <laughs> but I mean, to me, a, one giant plot hole is is not enough to undo a thriller, especially a high concept thriller like this that already requires a huge amount of suspension of disbelief. I will say I didn't see the final twist coming. Did you guys? No. Uh, not really. I mean, I, I, well, first of all, there's a red herring not a, without giving anything away at all. There was a massive red herring detour, which I guess is standard for such things. I didn't totally resent it, but it was, I thought it was weird and played out clumsily. And the way in which the screen conceit sustained itself for the red herring was just goofy and didn't work. Um, and, um, and it just seemed to fill out the movie and push it and nudge it in the direction of a 90 plus minute uh, feature. I thought that was where it got clumsy. And then, you know, local TV becomes a way to tell the story outside of outside, right? Like outside of people's living rooms and and away from people, you know, FaceTiming. Yeah. The the perspective loses at the end. Like what what desktop is it exactly that's tuned to live stream coverage of <laughs> the events? Like he clicks on like what's 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 like local NBC say about all this? Like at some point we're on God's laptop and you just have to accept it. <laughs> um, I just thought that was really, really clumsy. I mean, that actually is really familiar from from other movies. I it just it didn't work for me. If it worked for you, that's great. I think people should see the movie. Movie. It's it's a it's a totally admirable first feature, and I think Cho is terrific in it as the dad. Yeah, I mean it is a great way to spend a rainy evening or a rainy afternoon, uh, and I would recommend it. I also think it does it, 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 it the tools that it's using are tools that Hollywood has begun to use, like in the same way that the answering 
machine message uh, has become an incredibly, you know, was it was a very crucial part of many plots uh, and many ways to like learn about a missed connection or a missed signal between two characters for a couple decades there. Uh, the typed but unsent text message has become the exact same thing. Like, and it's all over all kinds of media. I think we talked about this in um, responding to some other show. I forget which one, but the notion that uh, you have a thought, you have an impulse, you're reaching out to someone, you want to connect with someone in some way, and you type the thing, and then you just you hear click 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 of the backspace cursor, and it's showing up on the screen. I mean, various directors are on TV and in film just superimpose it over a normal shot at this point. Um, the fact that there is all of this emotional expressiveness in mm-hmm. the way in which you manipulate the user interface of the screens and computers and phones that you use is really astute, really true. Like a lot of our emotional life is lived in, you know, watching the typing dots or the lack of response or thinking about how to frame or punctuate a particular digital communication. Um, And I really thought the director was very smart about all of that user interface, uh, user interface acting, basically click acting, Mm -hmm. the mouse acting (laughs) that that gets done. Yeah, this is one I'd throw at Dana. I mean, I I feel as though, and it may, it stands to reason that people making movies are thoughtful about how human beings relate to screens, and I like the way in the last few years, thoughtful directors, thoughtful screenwriters have really integrated into movies. Sometimes, you know, you know, glaringly as in this film, sometimes less so as in the Eighth Grade. But they're they're reckoning with what the not only what our relationship is to technology but what their medium's relationship is to technology right like they're 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 working in a medium in which people may no longer go to a movie theater like like literally the act of seeing a movie may become integrated into the desktop screen the way everything else is in the movie we just saw i think they're playing with that in really smart ways dana does that does that sound right to you yeah, one example you see of that in the movie that is not signposted, but that you just simply have to notice is the way that Margot's computer desktop, the desktop of his daughter that he's using to you know, try to crack into her information, keeps getting more and more cluttered. It starts off and she has this very clean, neat desktop. I was actually impressed. Like, she's got no folders scattered around whatsoever. But over the course of the movie, as he's following all these leads, it gets more and more cluttered. So, I mean, it really does kind of just replicate the, uh, the experience that we all have every day in front of our screens, which makes you realize that somebody watching this on their computer screen would add yet one more layer to it, right? They could be opening up their own windows in the background. And I thought this movie was was smart and clever about the way it did that. Okay. The movie is searching. It's out there in theaters. Go check it out. Um, yeah, when we're like a little bit on uh, the ambivalence fence, it's always fun to hear from listeners. Uh, have them help make up uh, our minds. Facebook.com slash CultureFest. Okay, moving on. All right. Well, listen, before we go any further, Julia, I'm going to take a wild guess here. you got some business. I do. In Slate Plus today, we are going to talk about the candidacy of Miranda. Cynthia Nixon, the actress, is running for governor of New York, the state in which we all reside and vote. And we will discuss how we feel about this progressive celebrity candidacy in our Plus segment. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support the work we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today.
Okay, onward. All right. Well, we are joined by Chris Melanthi, host of the Hit Parade podcast uh, for Slate. It's also a hit and a, a freaking gem every time it drops. Uh, Chris is also the author of the Why Is This Song number one column for Slate. Chris, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Steve. How are you? Uh, I'm really good. How are you doing? Uh, not bad. Not bad. Uh, I'm glad you're here. I need you here because <laughs> I have almost nothing to say about Sweetener, the new album from Ariana Grande, except this one thing. I love it. And I need you to tell me why. Uh, I kind of love it, too. Uh, it is it's Ariana Grande's fourth album. It is I would call it her most album qua album ever of her releases it's it doesn't feel like a collection of pop songs it, it feels thematic in a way that i don't think her albums have felt before um ariana grande uh, has been a hit maker pretty much this entire decade of the 2010s um with hits ranging from problem to break free to the way to side to side a song she had with Nicki minaj about a year year and a half ago um and you know she is kind of one of the things i find interesting about ariana grande is that she's kind of a trend of one at this point in the sense that she she's been called baby mariah uh part of the reason why they call her baby mariah or pint-sized mariah is that she's quite literally very tiny she's like i don't even think she's five feet um but more than that she's got she's sort of the avatar of our big lunged uh melisma inflected you know vocalizing for this decade which, you know, in decades past, you had multiple competitors for that title. Um, and in this decade, you've got people like Adele. Well, there's no people like Adele. There's Adele, right? Adele is herself a trend of one. But Adele is a different model entirely, right? Adele is, is you know, more in a, a mode of Ella Fitzgerald cross with Dusty Springfield or something. She's not necessarily a, a descendant of the Whitney Mariah school, whereas Ariana is closer or, you know, say Christina Aguilera, if you want to jump ahead a decade after them. Uh, Ariana Grande is more in that mode. Um, and like Mariah Carey, you know, the comparisons are manifold. She is somebody who has been hip hop adjacent and R&B adjacent her entire career. Um, so right from the jump, her very first hit, The Way, uh, was um, a song that interpolated an earlier rap song by Big Punisher called Still Not a Player and included rap by Mac Miller, who is her um, now late, it should be said, boyfriend, um, pr uh, former boyfriend. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, so, you know, she was kind of doing hip hop adjacent stuff right from the jump, which, frankly, this decade has been a smart, savvy, cultural and, you know, commercial move. Um, her biggest hit, uh, she got as high as number two on the Hot 100 in, uh, I believe it was 2014 with the song Problem, which featured then hot rapper um, uh, Iggy Azalea. Uh, so and several of her hits have featured um, Nicki Minaj. She and Nicki are almost like a team at this point. Should we listen to one of these previous hits just to get a sense of what the baseline sound was for our Grande before we dig into this album sound and what makes it so different? Sure. Why don't we listen to Problem featuring Iggy Azalea? has been just a steady hit maker this entire decade. All four of her studio albums have uh, gone to number one on the Billboard album chart, including this current one, Sweetener, which, to go back around to your original question, Steve, is um, being praised at a level 
critically and, and, you know, sort of in the marketplace that I don't think any of her albums have before. And I think some of that is is based around the narrative behind the album. Um, this is the first album Grande has released uh, since uh, a 2017 Manchester concert, Manchester in England, uh, in which uh, a terrorist killed uh, 22 people and injured uh, hundreds more. Um, just an unbelievable, unspeakable tragedy. And um, inevitably, whatever Grande released next was going to be in the wake of and, and speaking to that incident. And I guess we can say to her credit, she has chosen to produce an album that absolutely addresses it right from the opening track, a, a track, uh, an only 37 second track called Raindrops and Angel Cried where she almost dispenses with the mournfulness and then the rest of the album is quite joyous. She's basically chosen to be very life-embracing and life-affirming on this album. Um, and that, that, that started right with the, the opening single, uh, the lead-off single, which came out in the spring and was a pretty big hit all summer called No Tears Left to Cry, which the, the title says it all. I am surprised that that song was the first single. That seems like a fine song, but it didn't even make our summer strut discussion. Mm. Um, because there's a couple other songs on here that are incredibly hooky and boppable, and mm -hmm. I think we should discuss some of them. I was this was not what I expected. I mean, I knew of Ariana Grande as a uh, you know, pop singer. I knew of her as a cultural figure. I think I saw the SNL she was on and mm -hmm. found her to be sort of an impressive game, uh, capable in in sort of sketches as well as singing in a way that I was like, oh, I guess that that uh, girl's got more going on than I necessarily thought. She's also got a great comedy party trick. She shows up on talk shows like Jimmy Fallon and she is able to imitate other singers. So she'll do a bit where she like imitates the vocalizing of Britney Spears. Mm -hmm. I think I've seen her do that too. If you look her, if you look this up on YouTube, it's very amusing. Yeah, she's, she's, she's very game and very charming. Yeah, she's she always, she struck me as like a force for good on the celebrity scene, not someone whose music was necessarily uh, something I was following. And I expected to turn this album on and hear a bunch of different like radio ready jams a la the song that we played first mm -hmm. and instead it feels like this um much quieter groovier mm -hmm. seamless soundscape um in a way that feels like it's not trying to necessarily like rocket to the top of the charts the song that i that that I will queue up most often though is the title song Sweetener which I think is just a great terrific. really earwormy jam yeah was that on our summer strut list it should have been it really should have been to be fair this album is only a few weeks old when we did Summer Strut Oh, we'd already strutted. No Tears Left to Cry, the hit, was out, and I believe the second single, God is a Woman, was also out. But... Another fave. I like that one. Okay. Um, interesting. I'll, I'll get to why these song choices are interesting in a minute, but um, we can play God is a Woman. That's actually in the top ten right now. Mm -hmm. 
So God is a Woman is uh, the second single from the album. It's currently in the top 10 for a while. I believe both God is a Woman and No Tears Left to Cry were both in the top 10 at the same time, which is, I don't think, totally unprecedented for Ariana. She's had a good decade, but she's doing even a little better than her normal uh, with this album and with the hits. Um, now, here's what's interesting about both No Tears Left to Cry and God is a Woman. They are the primary tracks on this, what is it, 16-track album, 15-track album, by the stable of Max Martin, right? We've talked about him a gazillion times when we've done Summer Strut and other pop song segments. Max Martin, the premier singer-songwriter, producer, sonic architect of the last 20 to 25 years of pop. Um, and this is not new for Grande. Grande has worked with... Um, uh, Max Martin and his stable, including uh, a gentleman named Ilya Salmanzede, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, who has produced Bad Blood for uh, Taylor Swift before. Um, the Max Martin stable has been a staple of Grande's material before. Uh, her second album, I was just looking at this today, um, My Everything, which came out, I believe, in 2014. It's the one that Problem, the song we heard earlier, came from. Pretty much every hit was written by Max Martin, like directly. Um, what's curious about this album and the reason why I was glad you played Sweetener is that pretty much all the album cuts with a few exceptions are produced instead by another name from two decades ago Pharrell Williams mm -hmm. this is as much as anything mostly and it's odd because the two hits are from the Max Martin stable but everything else with a couple of exceptions this is a shadow Pharrell Williams album. Not to take anything away from Ariana, who I think is exercising even more creative control over her material than she did before and co-wrote many of these songs. I don't want to make it sound like, you know, she was Svengali'd on this album. But Pharrell Williams is like the spirit animal. And I don't mean, let me be clear about this because I know Julia... Uh, was not a fan of Happy, his enormous <laughs> hit four years ago. This is not the Pharrell of Happy. Happy, when you look at it with 2020 hindsight, is kind of an, uh, an aberration in Pharrell's catalog. It's the Pharrell of the Neptunes, which is the production slash recording duo that he's been in basically since the turn of the millennium that produced everything from Drop It Like It's Hot by Snoop Dogg to Hot in Here, Hot in Her by uh, uh, Nelly to, you know, songs by Gwen Stefani. He is the king of this kind of percolated syncopated airy sound you heard it on sweetener you can hear it on all sorts of tracks on this album successful is another example blazed the second track loved the song successful yeah too, which yeah, is like good, a good, good cut like the notion of teenage girls listening to that song is exciting to me for reasons we can go back to but well then maybe we should your, maybe, your... maybe we should play it That hook should be sort of repellent, right? Like the notion of of musicians at a certain point in their career turning to the discussion of the fact of their fame and success and mm -hmm. reveling in it is mm -hmm. like usually yucky. It's like not my favorite kind of song. And the, you often see careers kind of like uh, judder for a few albums mm -hmm. where they figure out like what they should sing or rap or perform about now that their life is full of like ease and I mean her life has not been full of ease in all kinds of ways that that Chris has mentioned but whatever the trappings of success and yet there's something about the phrasing there and the lyric itself that reads as radical to me like the the notion that she's this young woman who's been through so much who's um 
embracing her accomplishment. Mm-hmm. I don't know. The notion of like teenage girls with hairbrushes singing that, like singing about being successful, which like is a word that you think of as like Diane Keaton with like a briefcase from the 80s, sure. sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, and the notion that successful should, that, that that kind of ambition word should be associated with this pop star. I, I don't know. For some reason, I, am I crazy? I really love that song against my instincts somehow. I mean, maybe that kind of leads into what I had to say about Ariana, which has less to do with her music than with her public persona, which, like you, Julia, I knew much better than her music. I mean, I have a 12-year-old daughter, so I've heard a lot of these songs just in the context of, you know, putting together a pop jam list sure. on Spotify. And uh, and I was more aware of her as the person who survived that tragedy in Manchester at her show and, you know, reacted to it, I thought, just really graciously by mm-hmm. by coming back for the benefit concert that she did. Um, you know, now this new story of, of her ex-boyfriend, Mac Miller, having been a drug addict and mm-hmm. dying of an overdose and her getting absolutely savaged on social media for no reason other than being the ex-girlfriend of a guy who died of a drug overdose. Exactly. And, you know, just essentially being in the public eye at the age she is, because the thing we haven't mentioned so far is you gave that resume of her now almost decade long success is that she's 25 she's 25 and so she was 24 when that happened in manchester she was just a teenager when she started having her her first hits and she just seems like a person who's grown up in the public eye in in a way which maybe makes you know the the lyrics of a song like successful seem more sympathetic than they would had she had she not publicly gone through all of all of these things it was a funny thing my daughter said when i said that we were doing ariana grande on the show she said oh well she's had her scandals and i thought does she know about mac miller is she that sort of up on tabloid celebrity news i said well like what scandals she said well she licked a donut (laughs) yes the donut (laughs) licking incident it's remarkable that the most tmz-ish thing that ever happened to ariana grande was being caught on camera uh, licking a donut. I mean, you know, compared to the sorts of controversies that you saw everyone from Justin Bieber to Miley Cyrus getting themselves into in the last half decade, um, that seems fairly mild by comparison. Um, Chris, can I just ask you like just a total neb question here? But um, earlier when you were describing Pharrell and the kind of sound that he's going for on this record, were you talking about something called trap? Well, not exactly in this case. It's a, You're asking a good question because one of the things I find fascinating about this record is it's not trying to be very current with what is typically called trap in modern hip-hop parlance. It's the use of sort of downer synthesizers and, and a certain kind of thumping beat. Some of the beats clearly owe something to trap. But one of the things, and beware, guy in his 40s is about to say something about something 20 years ago. One of the things I find so warmly familiar about this album, almost on first listen, is it sounds like a record from about 15 to 20 years ago. It's the sound Pharrell was Mm. um, pursuing with the Neptunes on NERD, his his side rock and R&B, you know, band project with the Neptunes and, you know, his buddy Chad Hugo. It sounds like early 2000s pre-trap hip-hop um, and pop, frankly. It's, it's, it's very percolating. It's, it's very charming. It's whimsical. I, I dare say you wouldn't expect the first album a woman who's gone through the tragedy she and her fans went through a year ago to produce a whimsical album, but that's exactly what a lot of this album is. It sounds like successful. It sounds like sweetener. Um, so, yeah, that, that, mm-hmm. that may be... Part of what people are latching onto is that this album has a a unifying sound and it's very um, it's very yeah. up when you could have expected it to be morose. 
Uh, before we let you go, Chris, we should circle back to Mac Miller, Ariana's ex, mm-hmm. uh, and stipulate that all the uh, jerks on the internet blaming Ariana for his overdose are obviously idiots. Um, but can you just tell us a little bit about Mac Miller? I mean, we're we're talking our next segment about Burt Reynolds and generational responses to death. I feel like Mac Miller died too young in his career. He did. Uh, was so brief that I basically missed it. Can you can you give our listeners just a little bit of context there? Sure. Mac Miller is a rapper from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It was a rapper from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, who had really punched above his weight this entire decade. Um, back in 2011, he had a number one album called Blue Slide Park, which was, with some asterisks, the, the first, I believe, independently distributed debut album. The guy had been releasing so many mixtapes and building up such a following that when he dropped a formal album on an actual label, it like debuted at number one. And so he's kind of, he hasn't scored a lot of big top 40 hits, although Ariana Grande's very first top 10 hit, The Way, the one I talked about earlier, features Mac Miller rapping on it. So, you know, he was sort of ushered alongside her career and they dated for a couple of years. And to be fair to the haters, and I'm just playing devil's advocate for a moment, It would be difficult with Mac Miller dying of a drug overdose last week, not to mention Ariana Grande at all, because his last album that just came out a few weeks ago uh, called Swimming um, is basically an homage to his breakup with Ariana Grande. Um, It's a very emo downbeat record. It's funny. In a way, Mac Miller released the downbeat Something Terrible Has Just Happened to Me album that Ariana Grande actually didn't. You know, Ariana Grande experienced this unspeakable, massive tragedy and released this somewhat joyous album. Mac Miller basically broke up with his girlfriend. And um, to be fair to him, it's not a, you know, damn that bitch, you know, kind of nasty album. It's 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 just a very emo. I'm so sad and lonely and in my feelings. And of course, when he died of this drug overdose, people picked up on, you know, Ariana, this is your fault. And, you know, pulling the old, you know, Yoko Ono thing of, you know, blame the woman. And so there's been a lot of loathsome tweeting about Ariana Grande. If you've seen Ariana Grande's name in the headlines in the last four or five days, you've probably seen it because of this whole Mac Miller contretemps. But, um, yeah, it's it's sad. And yet it's it's interesting to compare where Mac Miller wound up in his what will turn out to be his final album compared to where Ariana wound up, um, both dealing with a different kind of, I, I guess you can call it grief, um, but processing it in different ways. Uh, Chris, as always, just a total pleasure to have you on the show. Explain pop music to Grandpa over here. Thanks a lot for coming on. This was great. <laughs> it's my pleasure, Steve. Thank you. All right. Well, the g- great movie star, film actor, Burt Reynolds, has died uh, this past week at the age of 82. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about his legacy. And I thought, Dana, maybe the way to get into it would be to kind of do a little bit of a taxon- taxonomy of male movie stardom in the 1970s with the background thesis that the male movie stardom of any era is kind of a referendum on the condition of American masculinity at any given time. So I was just spinning out in my head who who had become big male movie stars in the 70s. And here's what I came up with. You had the counterculture nebishes. So you had Dustin Hoffman, Elliot Gould, and Donald Sutherland. Very unlikely, not traditionally thought of as handsome, 
um, men who became huge stars in that era, starting in the 60s, but really kind of definingly in the 70s. You had the first wave of kind of non-WASP slash ethnic actors launched really mostly by Coppola and Scorsese. So obviously De Niro and Pacino doing their early work and great work. Um, and you had the proto-fascists. You had Eastwood and Bronson, like these really, <laughs> really unapologetic fucking hard bodies, like rip out your larynx, uh, due processes for fill in the blank word that I'm not going to say. Um, and, um, and then you had Burt Reynolds, right? Who, and what I think is amazing about Burt Reynolds, if, if, if you came of age as I did in the 1970s, and that's when you became aware of movies and like deeply immersed in them as a way of thinking about the world and yourself. R Reynolds was huge. I think this is hard to convey to people who even came of age t five, ten years l after I did. But he was he was almost inarguably the biggest movie star for a period of many years in the 70s. And as identified with that decade as any, uh, more identified with that decade than any of those other people. I mean, the stash and the attitude. But um, I think what was kind of magnificent about him is that he was kind of macho, but also impish, but also vaguely countercultural. Um, he seemed to be winking at you even when both eyes were wide open. He was really in on the joke, even though he was kind of a physically magnificent um, actor. He had been a football player for Florida State, got a knee injury. He was a, a pinup and a professional talk show guest before breaking through really as a real actor with the movie Deliverance, the great John Borman movie. And then he, Reynolds went on to a series of iconic roles um, in The Longest Yard, Smoking the Bandit, Hooper, which I think uh, un, somewhat undersung of those movies. And then there was a late career revival with Boogie Nights. So, Dana, I'm just going to turn to you now, throw it to you. I mean, those are some of my major associations with Burt Reynolds, who as a kid I, I loved and and for whom I always have had a respect. But I'm curious how people um, who maybe didn't grow up with them as much as I did, what they think. Well, you know, I'm just a few years younger than you, so I definitely remember the era in which Burt Reynolds was the ubiquitous Harry <laughs> He-Man on TV and movie screens all the time. But between being a few years younger and being a girl, I don't think I saw a lot of his movies at the time. It was like guy stuff. It wasn't like I was going to go to the theater and see Smokey and the Bandit and Cannonball Run and movies like that. But they were just sort of ubiquitously there in their trailers and his talk show appearances and him being somewhat of a, as you say, a comic figure, almost comic in his sexuality. And mm -hmm. I, so I guess my, this is just, you know, not me as a film critic. This is me as a kid remembering my associations with Burt Reynolds. I think that he seemed to me this slightly cartoonish, but also slightly threatening vision of what adulthood would be like, right? Mm. Because he was this big, hairy, macho guy. He was always kind of womanizing in this, um, in this almost self ironizing way, you know, mm -hmm. always yeah. sort of dating a new starlet or having a new tabloid affair. And uh, and of course, the famous centerfold, which was way before I could remember it. I was a tiny child when that came out. But I feel like the shadow of that loomed large over his persona. He was the guy who was the beefcake equivalent of, you know, the, the, the playgirl. And the 70s kind of needed that, right? If you think about where we were at at the sexual revolution in the 70s, we were at this kind of moment of, I don't know what wave of, of masculinity you would call it, but it was almost like, you know, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. And now we mm -hmm. get to check out a naked guy in the middle of a magazine. It was cosmopolitan, not Playgirl. But in fact, as we were reading in our research for this, Playgirl came to be in, in some degree because of the success of that centerfold in Cosmopolitan that, that Burt Reynolds did. So- mm -hmm. 
So I guess in some inchoate way, he probably seemed like this slightly scary vision of what adult male sexuality would be. And I, I probably had some feeling like, is there an option B? <laughs> and was probably more drawn, you know, although it was too young for me to really be drawn to anyone, but I probably was more sympathetic with the nebbishy Richard Dreyfus than, you know, the scary <laughs> black trans am driving cannonball run sensuality of Burt Reynolds. But now looking back at those movies, it, it, that was an incredible moment in American masculinity. Go Burt Reynolds. <laughs> yeah. 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 Why don't, Julie, before I turn to you, should we, maybe why don't we hear a clip from Deliverance? Because that really... That turned Burt Reynolds from a famous for being famous, you know, slice of cheesecake into a into an actor. All right. So to set up that scene a little bit, they're in a canoe. They're going down a river in the deep, deep south. Suburbanites of questionable, possibly masculinity. I think they're questioning their masculinity and they want to do something, you know, macho with their time off. And they're accompanied by a macho friend. You got a nice job. Got a nice house. Nice wife. Nice kid. You make that sound rather shitty, Lewis. Why do you go on these trips with me, Ed? I like my life, Lewis. Yeah, but why do you go on these trips with me? You know, sometimes I wonder about that. clip is on YouTube. You should look at it. I mean, he just looks physically magnificent. He's macho. He's bicep-y. He's confident. He's cool. He's calm. He gives, I think, some tremendous line readings in that scene. And he's in the process of using a bow and arrow uh, to to, uh, spear a fish um, in the water. Um, Julia, what, what do you make of, what do you make of Bert? Um, I haven't made anything of Burt Reynolds <laughs> ever. And uh, we had a debate. Well, well done. <laughs> we, we had a debate last week when he died about whether he was worth discussing. And I was honestly initially mystified that you guys were like, yeah, a week from now, let's talk about <laughs> this small time 70s movie actor. And I was like, we oh usually, my God, someone usually no, has to, no, someone usually has no. to die like by thir- by Sunday at the latest to be relevant for the Tuesday show. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just giving, pulling back the curtain, the curtain with full, full heartlessness She's here. She's exposing her robot innards to us right now. <laughs> oh, come on, you guys, you know, it's true. Uh, and then the very disjuncture in our response to him seemed interesting in and of itself to me, like his cultural relevance was essentially over by the time I was seven or something. Um, I somehow that I'm aware of that cosmopolitan centerfold, like even 10 years after it loomed over your childhood, it loomed over mine too. And I remember having the same response of like, whoa, (laughs) Uh, okay. And maybe later. (laughs) Um, and, uh, you know, then he was like having a tabloid something, something, Lonnie Anderson, something, something. And then he faded into <laughs> irrelevance. Like I have no, no relationship with him. But I do. But I was but but you guys convinced me because I think in some ways it's fascinating in this, you know, moment in American life where we we do measure ourselves and compare ourselves to these icons 
to some degree, decade by decade, to think about which ones endure and which ones subside. And also at this moment where there is like now an online mourning ritual in response to every celebrity death, there's, you know, the 10 or 20 different types of posts you see and the seeking out of the other people and the nostalgic memory of the childhood connection and the, you know, there's, there's a whole set of rituals that we do. And I don't mean to rattle them off like that in a dismissive way. They're mostly nice. I think the internet has been a improvement in the way that we mourn people who contributed to our culture. It's one of the things Twitter is best at, I would argue. Yeah. And and when someone dies who you have a deep connection with, you can, or whose work you have a deep connection with, you it gives you a way to express yourself and share your pain with others. And when someone dies who you have no connection with whatsoever, uh, but you can see the potency of the response from other people, it gives you a different way from reading just a straight obit in the paper to understand what that person meant. So I've been intrigued to see the response uh, from folks like you guys. Mm. Well, he, let me make a let me make a case that there are two Burt Reynolds, and and we ought to remember to elegize both of them. The first one is the kind of cartoon and and you know kind of in on the joke, winking. Burt Reynolds, this is probably the most famous Burt Reynolds, um, you know, Cannonball Run, Smoking the Bandit, um, you know, sort of little cheesy, cheesy bit in on the joke, um, you know, going through life, having fun, being a movie star is fun, but don't take me seriously. That guy was wonderful. He was great at being a star. But there's another Burt Reynolds, you know, the, the you know, those movies and he was not immune to the major trend in American movies in the 1970s, which was to something quite dark and somewhat socially introspective about American life. And I would say Deliverance, The Longest Yard, Semi-Tough, which is sort of Jules and Jim crossed with North North Dallas 40. It's kind of a curious menage a trois movie with Chris Christopherson and Jill Clayburg, um, off of whom uh, Reynolds plays wonderfully. I mean, two really great performers in their own right. Uh, but, if, you know, mostly forgotten movie. Um uh, Hooper, which is very much an elegy for American machismo. And um, and then a really forgotten movie that he directed in 1981. And I was very happy to see that Rob Sheffield at Rolling Stone, in his remembrance, pointed this out as maybe the one that you might watch. Because I loved this movie when it came out and rewatched it probably about 15, 12, 15 years ago and loved it all over again. It's Burt Reynolds' directorial, not his debut, he directed another movie before it. But uh, Sharky's Machine, which is a kind of modern take on Laura um, is really a dark and kind of in a weird way agonized and voyeuristic and weird movie. I mean, it's, it's really, it, it's, it's a standard thriller, but it's kind of pre-lethal weapon kind of feeds into, you know, the, the very cartoony mythologies of lethal weapon and the Mel Gibson character in that series. But he made, he made good movies. I think he made genuinely good movies that stand the, the, the test of time. And at the center of them is absolutely is his charisma. Yeah, something that really, really struck me, and particularly profiles and interviews with Burt Reynolds, which a lot of which were floating around in the past week, is how aware he was, Steve, of that division, that chasm in his career between the the fun-loving movie star persona and you know this this somewhat darker, deeper person who was making darker, deeper movies. And you see a lot of regret in this heartbreaking way that he feels that he didn't make the most of his career, that he made some bad choices or lazy choices, that he squandered some of his time and his talent and certainly a lot of his money. And that was something I wouldn't have suspected about Burt Reynolds, that in his late 70s, he was sitting in his Florida mm-hmm. mansion called Valhalla. There's a really <laughs> incredible Vanity Fair profile of him that we'll link to on the show page. 
and sitting there in Valhalla kind of having his regrets and thinking about things he would have done differently in his career. And one example he gives, which is sort of heartbreaking in reference to that Deliverance clip we heard. I mean, Deliverance really is an astonishing movie on all fronts, right? A great movie based on a great book, full of great performances, just something that has totally stood the test of time and is one of his earliest movie star turns. And it was made the same year, just a few months after that cosmopolitan spread of him lying on the the fur bear rug or whatever it was, and uh, and kind of making fun of his own beefcake persona. And he says in, in one of these profiles, well, that was a real mistake. I would not have posed for that. I might have gotten an Oscar nomination had I not posed on that mm-hmm. bear rug. Who knows yeah. if that's true or not? But the fact that he spent decades yep. living with that conviction yeah, is incredible. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, and just as the closest thing to a straight white male on this panel, um, let me say that, you know, it, thanks to a combination of jealousy and gay panic, your ability to form a cathexis-based relationship with machismo male movie stars, especially ones that are treated like slices of cake, you know, it's a psychological leap that something about the unique charms of that person has to enable. That, that, That circuit doesn't complete that easily. It's why not that many people are male movie stars. And Reynolds made it very, very easy to do really really easy to do you didn't you didn't you didn't hold it against him that he was this kind of you know good old boy football playing wise cracking you know he just was full of himself without being an egomaniac <laughs> it's like a kind of a tough thing to do yeah Stephen, i think a late performance where you really see that and one that is really sad did not lead to more chances to do great performances and great movies was the boogie nights character jack horner the the porn king that he plays mm-hmm. in, in paul thomas anderson's boogie nights which i think even though he didn't like that movie he didn't like working on it apparently he and anderson were constantly unhappy with each other on set for one reason or another and he didn't really understand the movie in the end but there's something about his performance in Boogie Nights that I think incorporates all of those kind of reservations and conflicts and and inner ambivalence that that we've been talking about. It's it's one it's a great performance in spite of him not seeming to quite know what movie he's in. All right. Well, maybe hit us up on social media, Twitter or Facebook. Tell us what your favorite Burt Reynolds performances were. And, you know, maybe draw some kind of a parallel between your age or when you were born or when movies were big to you as a kid and uh, Reynolds' career. Because he's going to mean the world to some of our listeners and less than nothing to some others of them. And that's that's kind of of interest. All right. Well, I think just one last thing we then we got to go out on Cadillac Ranch by uh, Springsteen in the opposite uh, uh, verse. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse day. Oh, nice little drone at the end there. Uh, okay. So my endorsement this week is not so much an endorsement as a cultural harm reduction strategy of sorts. Do you guys know about the existence of Amazon Smile? No. Uh, no. So Amazon Smile is basically just an alternate web page for Amazon. It's operated by the same people. It has the same products, the same prices. Everything is exactly the same, except that you go to smile.amazon.com and you can sort of, you you know, put put all your information there and, and keep it as your main Amazon page. And when you buy something through Amazon Smile, it donates a half of a percent of what the price of that product 
to the charity of your choice. And they have a whole bunch of charities you can register with. I chose the Nature Conservancy. And this was a thing I did a year or so ago because I was just feeling bad about using this company that I've already ranted against on this show on many occasions, mainly because of what they do to the book market, but for many other reasons, right? There's reasons to have problems with Jeff Bezos and Amazon. So it's sort of a way of feeling that your inevitable addiction to the products of this company, which you really can't avoid. I mean, there are so many occasions when I have to rent a movie on Amazon because it isn't anywhere else, or I you got to buy a big bucket of caulking glue for your construction project. There's just things that you get on Amazon because they're there. I mean, particularly household things, right? Like a shower rod. Oh, God, got to go to Amazon. But if you have it on Smile, at least you sort of feel like a few pennies of my purchase, you know, a, a, a highly capitalist, a tiny little scraped off the bottom amount of your, your purchase will go towards doing something good for the world. So after having this for a year, I think I've contributed maybe a total of $8 to charity, which seems like very little. But if I can get couple hundred people listening to this podcast to start using smile.amazon.com. Maybe we can add up some good purchases. I am so glad you endorsed that. I buy things from Amazon all the time. and I think I've had that promoted to me and felt like I don't know. I, I misunderstood it. Like I didn't, I didn't. It sounds like it's asking you to donate something, right? But it doesn't. It, all you do is buy your things through a different web page. Right. It's, it seemed a little bit like one of those pushes, pushes that's like, you know, add a dollar at checkout right. to support blah, blah, blah thing, which I always say no to and feel like an asshole. But I'm like, no, I I give away my own money purposefully and directly to the institution without like funneling it through Dwayne Reed. Right. So I'm not going to funnel it through Dwayne Reed. Um, but yeah, with some with the, with some place where you do as much commerce as Amazon, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, maybe somebody out there will tell me this is all a big scam and actually it's not going to the charities and it's all horrible and everything's grim. But using smile.amazon.com instead of just amazon.com gives me some feeling that I'm, you know, making some tiny, tiny bit of difference in the burning hellscape we all inhabit. <laughs> Oh, throw, a, throw a dropper of water on the burning hellscape. <laughs> but it turns out it's an electrical fire, so the water just makes it work. <laughs> and with that ringing endorsement, Amazon Smile. <laughs> uh, Julia, um, what do you have? All right. I've got two recommendations today. Um, they're, they're possibly more reconsiderations than recommendations. I'm really getting woo-woo with the form here uh, lately. Indulge me. The first is... Uh, H&M, the fast fashion purveyor, just unveiled a hot collab with the estate of William Morris, the arts and crafts artist. Incredible. <laughs> so they're going to come out with their own line of like paisley wallpapers or they, something? They check out this blouse with a pussy bow and an ornate, uh, you know, arts and crafts floral pattern. Lovely. I'm not sure that I will procure any of these clothes because I don't have time. But in the great spinning Plinko wheel of like, what are our cultural reference points and which uh, which aesthetics are we reanimating and and tossing into the gigantic Vitamix blender of fast fashion? I suppose it was inevitable that eventually they would have to reach back into the Industrial Revolution slash 19th century. <laughs> um, but all I can say is kudos to that. How fresh and exciting. Love William Morris Prince. Very happy that we'll see them on High Street, as they say. <laughs> An arts and crafts bungalow-shaped hat. <laughs> Check out this scarf. Tell me you wouldn't wear this headscarf, Dana. 100% you would. And you oh, would yeah. Great They're in incredible prints. Yeah. Okay. So just the... the, the um, 
I'm not sure if I'm endorsing these products so much as just the the sheer omnivorous gaping maw of modern culture and the fact that uh, its hunger for new influences means it will resurface fascinating old ones. That's thing one. Thing two is part of my running series of commentary on children's books and children's literature uh, to which I subject you all. My children have been very into the Mr. Men books lately. You know, those like little British books, Mr. Happy, Mr. Greedy, Mr. Busy, Mr. Blah. Um, And I, for a long time, dreaded whenever their, their attention would cycle around to the Mr. Books because, first of all, the difference between the Mr. Books and the Little Miss books is just galling on its face. Why not Ms., first of all? And also the like lessons about female attributes and behavior and male attributes and behavior like generally don't type out in a way that I'm totally excited about. On the other hand, oh, and then also the books are too long. Like they, the, the, the sentences are too repetitive. It takes them too long to tell the stories. The They're, prose is not good. The, the illustrations and the formatting are fantastic. Well, so so I was I was mostly dreading them because, and particularly there are a couple like like Mr. Greedy. There's some ones about like body weight. There's some ones that are like truly bad, and then the prose is pretty bad in all of them. Um, but over time, they've like wormed their way into my psyche for two reasons. First of all. The interior decor and the houses in all of the illustrations is amazing. Like I want, <laughs> I just want to live in the little men houses. Like they have these incredible color schemes, these incredible floral prints, these incredible little cottages with brightly colored roofs. Like just the illustrations of the Mr. Men books and the visual conceit of the Mr. Men books. And I mean, it's almost like a Myers-Briggs or like an Enneagram or it's it's like horoscopes for kids. Like it's just like people, they come in different types. They have different emotions. They have different vibes. Like the concept is okay. And the aesthetic is beautiful. Well, And then there's also just something so British about them because the lessons about the types, occasionally they veer off into like being fat is bad and it's because of your personal failings type ones that I just have pulled from readership because they suck so much. But then there's other ones like we read Mr. Busy last night um, and it's about the conflict between Mr. Busy and Mr. Slow and it just ends in an unexpected place. Like they don't, even though they all follow this pattern, the the some of the books issue a moral judgment on the character at the center. Some of them just show you that people with different personality types are different. I don't know. I guess what I'm saying is I have Stockholm Syndrome for the Mr. Men books. <laughs> she wants to live in a world where she's a large purple dot with legs living in a cool apartment. I just think they're beautiful and they are more morally and emotionally complex than I initially found them to be when I found them only to be a loathsome scourge on the bedtime reading horizon. I know. I always found them disappointing <laughs> once I opened them and started reading them. It's like the book design is just fabulous, right? They're square format and they're kind of thin. They have this kind of pamphlet-like quality and those really those really graphic contrasting colors. But then you open them and they just kind of meander off into mm-hmm. nowhere. Yeah, we have an Italian edition of Little Miss Bossy and sometimes I read it in Italian or translate it from the Italian, which makes it mentally interesting enough to help me ignore how bad the prose is. <laughs> anyway, those were my thoughts. Not really an endorsement, <laughs> just thoughts. And also I can't wait. What H&M needs to do next season is a Little Miss and Mr. Book Interiors <laughs> capsule collection. I would be so here for that. So can I just get this straight? So Dana's endorsement is an eyedropper taken to the burning hellscape to probably no effect. And yours is not quite the scourge I thought it was. 
Yeah, you, Steve, you got to bring us some actual quality culture here. <laughs> Should really I endorse something that I that I actually like and and think people would enjoy, or is that just not <laughs> keeping with the show? <laughs> <laughs> um, see, see what you can do <laughs> if you're if you're the sunny optimist this week and the true <laughs> oh, paramour dear. of the culture. We're all fucked. All right. Well, I we are all fucked because um, I have uh, things that I uh, care about and love that I'm going to now endorse, which is the concept of the segment. But we'll we'll get back on track uh, next week. But anyway, so uh, I, I'm in a musical mood this week. Um, I have previously endorsed Phoebe Bridgers and her record. There's one song in particular that's just leapt. Uh, out of the out of the album and into my ear, warmed its way uh, all the way down. Uh, it's called Motion Sickness. That is such a great tune. Oh my gosh, that is a killer, killer, killer tune. It is really good. And then the next is I was over at a friend's house and he was playing a jazz record. Um, and uh, I was like, what is this? And he said, you know what it is? It's Coltrane's Lush Life, which is a good but maybe not considered all-time great Coltrane record, but it's a beautiful record. And I was like, well, who's that playing the piano on it? Because it's not McCoy Tyner, who's, you know, on Love Supreme and some other really iconic Coltrane records and didn't sound like Hank Jones to me. And I just couldn't remember who who else had Coltrane played with. Julia, any guesses? No guesses. Red Garland. Ooh, I should have taken the hint. Oh, so sweet, man. So just just smooth and sweet as a piano player can be and it's you know coltrane is to me he's just one of the towering artists of the 20th century full stop i mean you don't have to put any qualifier on it you don't have to say musically or american or whatever um to me he's just up there with i mean fill in the blank picasso and i don't know on and on and on and on and um um but he has a very you know he's 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 aggressive harmonically aggressive in ways that are meant to be sometimes challenging but he was capable of very beautiful playing and and it's something about the pairing of Coltrane with Garland it's just just exquisite that's a great record I mean it just I hadn't heard it in ages it is such a beautiful record and um we've pushed Red Garland the pianist previously it's a great a great pairing I really recommend it and then finally one of my all-time favorites Richard Thompson the British folky come out with a new record I don't know the new record but he's touring with it and I will say a, a it's a bucket list. It's a bucket list item. You should see Richard Thompson before one of you dies because he, he just puts on an incredible show. I'm preferably alone acoustically. I think he's touring with an electric trio. He's great either way. He will take out an acoustic guitar at some point in the evening. He he's, he's charming. He's got an immense back catalog filled with wonderful songs. If you don't know him, maybe check out bees wings, like him doing bees wings or, uh, I'll try to think of another one, put it on the web. But he, he's, he's, if you can, go see him. He's coming to the East Coast in like a month or two. Um, so check him out. All right. Uh, thanks, Dana. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Julia. I believe that Little Miss Boston in Italian is called Io Comando. <laughs> <laughs> Your Julia's new, catchphrase. <laughs> Your new title. <laughs> You'll find links to some of the things we talked about uh, today on our show page. Of course, that's slate.com slash culturefest. As always, you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash culturefest. We also have a Twitter feed that's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Dana Stevens and Chris Melanthi and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. That was fun. We'll see you. We'll see you soon. 